I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. Have a nice dinner. Relax. 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 Six 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 Fifth Avenue, watch out for ya. <laughs> yeah, last time we took a little bit of a delightful detour with a special guest. Uh, this week we're gonna get back into if there is a normal format. That's what we're <laughs> gonna be doing again this week. Back into the trenches. Back into the trenches of what's really going on. Right. So to kick things off, just per usual, a brief recap of where we find ourselves, uh, essentially, right now, is the flood peeps are unleashed. The people return to the streets. Yes. Out here in these streets, basically between the past couple and the next several weeks, um, many, if not most, states will be opening up in various ways with various plans because there's no coordinated national plan. There are a medley, uh, shit show patchwork of various <laughs> plans. States are the on their own. Purview of all the governors. Uh, so we're talking to each other right now from two very different states. Opposite coasts, uh, in fact, some may say. Mm-hmm. So we are essentially entering the next kind of phase of this whole thing, which is a grand experiment in how this will go and how long it will last before we go back to once we came. Uh, at least that's my perspective on things, that it's just a matter of time before we're back to uh, lockdown uh, quarantine mode in our own homes. Right. That's yet to be seen, but I have a feeling that second wave will hit too. And then, like you said, the lockdown might be extended or indefinitely. Right. Absolutely. It's kind of like that moment in time where you throw a ball up into the air and for a moment as it hits its apex, it's like suspended animation <laughs> before it plummets back down toward Earth. I feel like that's the kind of the moment in which we find ourselves now. And as we chatted about recently, the coming weeks, it's almost like this very brief opportunity window to <laughs> potentially um, resettle, get something that you may be maybe haven't been able to get um, if you have the ability maybe even to relocate um, elsewhere uh, because there's all bets are off uh, as to how long this will last Yeah. as the summer weather starts to heat up so does the upcoming election things are starting to uh, kind of focus more on on that on the on the campaigns we'll get a little bit into that here uh today essentially it's about to be a crazy ass summer (laughs) y'all it's gonna be it's gonna be wild as we mentioned it's not gonna be the same as hot girl summer right right definitely different (laughs) it'll be That's a whole different story as to whether global warming or these weather events are being manipulated by instruments like HARP 
and things like that, but nevertheless, they are very real and will displace more people, and when you already have a lot of people losing jobs and unable to relocate, then you have natural disasters coming in. It just, like, further complicates things. So we shall see, but, yeah, what you said makes me think of two things. First, relatively recently... I know that the mainstream media had reported on something that Kushner said, which was really scary and which kind of makes you think a second wave might be imminent and deadly. And so according to many news outlets, or at least in their headlines, they said Kushner told Time that the presidential election might get delayed because of the pandemic. But it turns out, though, if you watch like the whole interview, He actually didn't say that. And if you listen to our second to last episode, you know, like, I'm not a huge fan of Kushner. I don't even believe he's a real man, but what is a real man these days? I don't even know. That's another story. But I do think it's messed up that all these outlets I trust, sort of trust, (laughs) were saying, reporting that he said something that he really didn't say, and this is just, like, fueling the fire and really bad, like, I'm part of this and I'm guilty too, but a lot of us who are just reading headlines, because there's just so much info, um, we are missing the facts, and so the facts here are, yes, the, the reporter from Time magazine did ask him if he thought elections could go past November 3rd because of the pandemic, And all he said back was that it's too far off in the future to tell, and it's not his decision to make. So he didn't say, you know, like, they're going to be suspended. Uh, People are spinning it pretty much saying, like, he refused to confirm it would not be delayed. And last month, I think it was last month, who can even tell, on a virtual fundraiser, uh, Biden said he thought that Trump was going to try to postpone the election Of course, he put it in, like, a really comical way. I can't remember his exact quote, but he is just like, you can bet your bottom dollar Trump is going to postpone the election. And so even though Kushner didn't explicitly say that, it's easy to believe that something like that could come out of his mouth because, you know, you have even Trump, remember, recently retweeted this meme about him that was just like a gif of Trump 2020, 2024, 2028, and him being president forever, and he was just like, fuck yeah, or something, <laughs> and tweeted it himself, like, do you remember? I do, I was pretty sure when I saw that, yeah. Yeah, so with him putting things out like that, it's easy to believe Kushner could have said that, but I mean, like you were saying also in our previous episode about Kushner, two episodes before this, you were saying that he's been, he's like the wonder boy with no expertise, but he's been like tasked to literally find peace in the Middle East and all of these other astronomical things. <laughs> but, but technically, neither he nor Trump would have the power to halt the election legally. Although I'm not sure if, if it, that changes because we're in like emergency times. But from what I know, it wouldn't be up to them anyway. Right. And one thing that has been really bubbling up in recent weeks has been this, you know, this comes without fail every couple years, but uh, we're back to another, like, full-fledged assault on the U.S. Postal Service, uh, and this time through the lens of potential uh, large-scale vote-by-mail efforts for November's election, given that the second wave is imminent, and also in general, even if it's not, it would still be much safer, of course, for folks to vote from the you know, safety of their own homes. Keep in mind, I live in a state where that has been successfully run since 1995, so it's by no means a, a far-fetched concept. Mm-hmm. He claims um, fraud, though, even though, you know, as we know, he claims fraud occurred in 2016, but his reason is, oh, paper ballots equals fraud. Right, which is such a, like, fucking talking point uh, of the party line, 
even though like like voting fraud is actually like ridiculously low it's like 0.0012% or some shit like that <laughs> that has been brewing up for sure uh, keep in mind that there's a lot of older folks who represent Trump's base so <laughs> you know he it is in one respect kind of an act of self-sabotage to not enable this to some degree because the harsh reality is that a lot of his base could perish you know, by election day. Yeah, unless he is not even worried about that because, and again, back on the conspiracy tip, if he knows that the elections, like, don't even matter anymore at this point, he has it in the bag. He has the power to stay in power indefinitely. So maybe that's why he explains his beef with the Postal Service and how far he's taking it. Right. And not to mention that Putin, uh, essentially, <laughs> uh, has completely taken over and will be president for life, much like his, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about China today, but yeah, it's definitely top of mind for 45. So. And, and like his other buddy in North Korea, who may or may not be weekend at burning himself. I feel like the 2020 is brought to you by Weekend at Bernie's. It's like, not only <laughs> did we have this 2020 moment, but as we This is the plot line behind episode, everything. Dude, honestly, I think we cracked the code because <laughs> it's not only what's going on in North Korea, but also, like, straight up, it's, like, the Democratic Party's strategy <laughs> to, like, get Biden's, like, limp body into the White House before he fucking dies like this is unthinkable before he dies or gets me too to death <laughs> right. it's like straight up canceled so yeah we are in a weird place like you were saying things are starting to somewhat open up people are getting restless as usual it's hard to assess the risk and it's all hyper local too it just really depends on where you are living how big the threat of the virus is right now where I live, it seems like it's dying down, and then I still know people who are getting it um, or have been around people who got it recently. And so it's like, hmm, you can't really tell how safe things are. But like we sometimes like to ponder on, kind of want to just open it up and think maybe about what kind of changes might we see from this pandemic. Because earlier today, I saw a quote from Milton Friedman, and I don't agree with him on a lot of things. He's actually a diehard free market capitalist. But this, I do agree with him. And I'll just tell you like a small part of the quote I liked, but it goes, only a crisis actual or perceived produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. So this pandemic is a huge crisis. And again, actual or perceived, it doesn't matter whether you subscribe to this being a hoax or you believe in it, because it is still a crisis going on. So that means things can either change for the better or for the worse. And that kind of ties into our last episode about the astrological cycles we're experiencing now. But it's just interesting because it's this moment of like, what's rearing its head more? Is it progressivism or disaster capitalism, a la the Clintons taking advantage of Haiti and not helping them and pocketing millions of dollars? And so, I don't know, I can think of two examples of ways it could go. So like, but first, I don't know, what would you say disaster capitalism is for our listeners who aren't familiar with it? Great question, and that's a, another big plug for one of my readers, one of our favorite authors, I'd say, Naomi Klein, who wrote Shock Doctrine, mm -hmm. No Logo, and some others. Great titles. She should give us um, a proceed of the royalties. Honestly, like Naomi Klein, like we're gonna need so we're gonna need some cold hard candy cash, okay? Like send us some loonies and some toonies, please. <laughs> uh, yes. So the way I would explain it briefly is that uh, essentially it's in times of chaos, times of crisis, uh, how unhinged late stage capitalism rears its head to 
uh, not even mildly take advantage of the, the havoc, but to actually incite the havoc to begin with as like a premise uh, to further expand the profit motive. Um, so it's not to say that it's uh, capitalist entrepreneurs seizing the moment in time of crisis, but it's actually really leveraging broader shocks um, on purpose in order to advance uh, various interests. Exactly. And so with that context in mind, an example of disaster capitalism like I could see potentially brewing right now is with Social Security because you know Trump is pushing a suspension of the Payroll Act, which would cut Social Security dramatically, well, and either have it be cut altogether or give it the excuse to privatize it, which people, some people have been lobbying for for years. And our ideas that, like, George W. Bush and even Biden back in the 90s hinted at. So um, I think Social Security is a great example of that, like, We'll see how that plays out, if it's going to go the way of disaster capitalism and go private or get cut. And then another example is how, you know, we've bailed out the cruise lines who don't even pay U.S. taxes. None of them do. I mean, Disney is registered in the Bahamas. I forget the rest, but they're all registered in, like, islands. Panama, also, yeah, Caribbean Island as well, yeah. Exactly. And um, bailed out airlines and fracking industries and hotels, you know, things that are detrimental to the environment. So that's a good example of disaster capitalism that already did happen, unfortunately. But then things could go... Well, I don't know. First, do you have any other examples of, like, disaster capitalism in the times of corona? Well, I mean, I would argue that, you know, we had the, I forget the title, uh, but I think it was Inspector General, the person tasked with overseeing the, you know, the, how the funds will be allocated with all these trillions of dollars that, that were passed through these various waves through Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like a lot of them are going into the pockets of you know Trump and his cronies, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd argue that's also, um, in a way, disaster capitalism. Um, yeah, all of that oh, bailout, all of this fake stimulus, yes. and also like all the no bid contracts and folk, you know, going some firms got contracts. A lot of this bailout money, even though they've never done uh, orders of this size or even um, supplied medical equipment um, in this way before uh, got $250 million contracts and, and so on. It's like <laughs> highly suspect for sure. Wild. Definitely highly suspect. And so those are good examples of disaster capitalism now, but then one example or I guess one hope of ways that maybe that progressive ideas can shine right now or if something is able to come out of that Green New Deal proposal, which is only, I, I think, 14 pages, so it's, it's literally just a proposal. It really needs to be fleshed out. But if something like that could arise where they, I know some things that they proposed were like stop burning fossil fuels and have universal health care for all, things like that, then I think that would be something good to come out of these times, kind of like how FDR came up with the New Deal. Absolutely. What I took from our last conversation about astrology was looking at patterns in history, and we talked about last time how when certain transits were going on that are going on now, it happened during many other plagues and pandemics, and one of them was the Black Death, or the plague. And it's interesting to see what kind of changes came from that pandemic because the Black Death came to England in 1348. And then after that, the socioeconomic and political tensions were high and peasants were being kept in poverty and conditions were getting worse and worse. And it led to the peasants' revolt in 1381 and they killed many noblemen. 
so maybe Republicans should watch out. Just kidding. Everyone should watch out. Because, <laughs> yeah, after the plague, I think it was almost 50% of people were dead, or almost 50% of people died from the plague, and then that means there was, like, fewer people who left to consume food and to work the land. So, like, you see price of food dropping, and people can demand higher wages, and people are buying land at this time, too. So the nobility in that time in England was obviously opposed to this, um, they wanted to protect their power, and so they turned to the law to fuck ordinary people. So this is like a tale as old as time. And I know starting in 1351, they they started like passing a lot of bad laws. Like one was setting wages at pre-plague levels, and so and also you couldn't leave your job for a better-paying job, or you would go to jail. Just really oppressive, crazy things, and the last straw had to do with a high tax, but but yeah, you could say that an effect of the plague was this revolt of the peasants, so do you think we might see something similar take place here today? I do, I think there's been this broader conversation around essential workers and hazard pay and hero pay, that is just the tip of the iceberg. I do see uh, potential, at least, for more of a focus in national dialogue on collective bargaining, workers' rights, unionization. A much brighter spotlight has been thrown in recent years on like Amazon warehouses, with Jeff Bezos being like essentially the poster boy for unhinged capitalism. Right. And Amazon paid zero taxes in 2018, let's zero be clear. Zero taxes. That's outrageous. In this past week, it came out that by mid-decade, uh, Bezos could potentially become the world's first trillionaire. Meanwhile, <gasps> his warehouse workers are making like $7 Eat the rich. Hour. That's disgusting, and that is, like like we said, late-stage capitalism, of which I think disaster capitalism is a huge part. But yeah, the system is rigged against those who actually like do the work. And um, I don't know, that also makes me think, like, I think around 500,000 workers at McDonald's don't get offered paid sick leave, even right now. That's absolutely asinine, holy shit. Yeah. And I will say, like, I think in general, in our, you know, 24-7 news cycle, which we've been dealing with for decades now, I do think in general people are pretty forgetful. There's, like, this amnesia, right? That said, though, I think that there's an outlier here, given that the Great Recession wasn't that long ago. For many people, many people are still feeling the impact of mm-hmm. 2008, 2009. And now we have on our hands another once-in-a-century crisis that actually may eclipse the Great Depression with a D. <laughs> so exactly. I think that people, I mean, there could be... If we get into mid-late summer and folks are not able to put food on their table like that's ultimately uh that's really what we saw with the arab spring when folks can't feed their families like that's when they take to the streets such um, a good point historically true and historically true right so i i could see that happening um certainly yeah and like let's just set the stage right here in this late stage capitalist capitalism hell and like even in 2017 where the fed reserve reported that 40 percent of americans wouldn't be able to afford a 400 dollar surprise expense and that was just in 2017 and as you know ambulances alone cost at least one grand here in the united states which is the only first world country who does not have universal healthcare or guaranteed paid parental leave 
Anyway, it's just a monstrosity. So imagine all these people who are living paycheck to paycheck, now getting sick, who don't have health insurance, or who just got furloughed or laid off. And here we know, too, like in America, the drug prices are higher than in other countries. And it was already projected in 2019, I think, that 500,000 would go bankrupt due to medical expenses. Or actually, no, I think that was projected for this year. So now, because of the coronavirus, who knows? And, like, set the stage even further. I mean, this virus aside, it's like right now, the top, not even 1%, the top 0.1%, so one-tenth of 1%, owns as much wealth as the bottom 90% have, which is hard to even fathom. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. And like we said, Bezos, you know, Amazon made a huge profit, didn't pay any taxes, none at all, which is crazy. And then in 2018, it was the first time in history where the four richest families paid a lower tax rate than the bottom 50% of people. <sighs> Unreal. And one, one bright spot in this conversation that's shifting, again, I'm not going to hold my breath or anything, but um, while pre-pandemic Biden, who's the presumptive nominee, his whole narrative was around unification, that being said, now that this has all happened, he is his camp is opening up more, reaching out to Bernie and his people mm-hmm. to really expand his economic platform and economic strategy and, and message. Uh, because as we've touched on in many episodes, Bernie, in, in many ways, is the man of the moment. Will he be the nominee? No. Unless Biden passes. Always a bridesmaid. <laughs> Always a bridesmaid. <laughs> but his economic message, which, again, talk about fucking zeitgeist uh, hopefully will influence uh, Biden's platform. It's seemingly like that. that is actually happening. Uh, folks getting together, at least in virtual virtual boardrooms, meeting rooms, um, because the bottom line is, that is the message of the moment, truly. Yeah, because right now, America is basically a third world country with a Gucci belt, because on the outside, we seem, we seem like, well, I don't know, this is how we've purported ourselves for years, even, even back to like Reagan saying, we're on this. We're on top of this hill with the, our perfect democracy, and it is up to us to wage war of democracy on all these countries, so they can have the perfect democracy like ours. And it's like, um, when did this democracy ever exist? When did this perfect democracy ever exist? Because, like you said, the reason why Bernie and progressive ideas actually have a chance right now or are picking up some momentum is because again America is the only first world country that doesn't guarantee paid parental leave and things like that and this like I was just saying the same drug that's manufactured in the same place would be way less expensive in Canada than it would be here so you will see people start to push back and I know also in New Orleans garbage men are going on strike. This is actually, and it might be an example of more disaster capitalism, but now garbage men are going on strike. They're not getting paid enough. They're obviously putting their lives at risk every day. And instead of the government doing the right thing, now New Orleans is using prison labor. to collect the garbage instead of giving so it's like as much as I want to be so hopeful about what we're talking about and stuff and then I'm like oh wait this real this real world example so I hope progressive ideas can flourish but it seems like they always get struck down and that's what is honestly so depressing about this time in this society and like we've talked before on this podcast a little bit about the BBC documentary Hypernormalization. And it's just something I see as like 
all experiencing as a society because our problems are so complicated and the real world is so hard to understand that it's just easier to live in this fantasy, to live online, and to be entertained and consume media and things like that. So I think that's where we're at now, and that actually brings me into uh, what we wanted to talk about today, which was a guy named Edward Bernays, and how he, understanding his work and the birth of public relations and its role in politics, because a lot of people only think of public relations in terms of advertising, but Understanding all of that will help you understand how someone like Trump rose to power, came into power, and just kind of explain how we ended up in this complicated situation where we're in, where we're living like two realities. So he was one of the fathers of PR, and before him there were some PR specialists uh, like we talked about in our podcast where we talked about the Rockefellers, uh, we know that they use specialists. Like, they had this guy who's also worth looking into. This guy named Ivy Lee was hired as, like, their crisis management and helped clean up their image. But Edward Bernays is responsible for a lot of the propaganda that literally is what we today know as politics. So it's just funny because I don't know, wouldn't you say like that growing up in school and stuff, weren't we kind of brought up to believe that our country doesn't have propaganda and that our press is not biased and that like they maybe talk about propaganda in like World War Two or I don't know, maybe they bring it up once, but it's like an old thing that we're too civilized to have now like what do you say you kind of experienced that in school oh absolutely like taking back to you know my history class and stuff it's, it's almost hilarious it's sad and hilarious to think of like what was spouted and what we were conditioned to believe because <laughs> it was almost like this purity um as you're saying like yeah that's over there that was in a different time it's not here. It's not now. Uh, with regard to American politics, yeah, but as we know that's the furthest from the truth. And that's the ultimate psyop. Psyops are actually a lot to do with public relations. But for those who don't know, a psyop is a psychological operation, and according to the Department of Defense's U.S. Army Field Manual. PSYOPs are any form of communication in support of objectives designed to influence the opinions, emotions, attitudes, or behavior of any group in order to benefit the sponsor either directly or indirectly. So now I can see, like, we both went to public schools, and I can see now that we were... Of course, you know, America was always painted as the savior. And like we said, all of the atrocities, especially in World War II, were made to seem like they could never happen again because we have learned from them. But little did we know that's like a psyop because there's these bigger patterns and systems that are always at play and have been at play maybe since the dawn of time or man. And so we didn't know what the hell was really going on, but now we know that pretty much our textbooks were probably, you could just consider them more like press releases than facts <laughs> um, on behalf of the United States. So yeah, back to that guy, Edward Bernays. A fun little fact is that he is the American nephew of Sigmund Freud. Yeah, so he was kind of the first person to take Freud's ideas, bring them to America, and use them to manipulate the masses. Bernays began to, like, write this book called Propaganda in the 1920s, and basically he was one of the main figures in the Creel Commission, which was a commission put together in World War I to create 
propaganda to make the Americans more invested in the war because it's unnatural for people to want to send their family members off to go fight <laughs> and possibly die. So you have to like drum up a story to get them emotionally to feel patriotic or, you know, have a foreign enemy or things like that. So that commission was put in place and the propaganda system of the First World War and of the commission that Bernays was part of, he said showed it was possible to, and this is a quote from him, to regiment the public mind every bit as much as army regiments their bodies. So basically, these propaganda techniques, according to him, had to be used by the intelligent minorities in order to make sure that the masses or these slobs stayed on the right course. And that's not a very democratic idea, is that? No, no, no. And that's why, dare I say right now, our whole democracy is a psyop. Quick tangent is something we've talked about in the past. It's like the whole party is a psyop, right? Mm-hmm. The whole like binary, rigid, like red versus blue two party system is a fucking psyop because as we both know, the two parties have much more in common than they do. Uh, that separates them in terms of practice and uh, serving special interests and lobbyists and multinational corporations. Yeah, it is wild. So this book that Bernays wrote called Propaganda, it came out in 1928 after World War One, And there he said talked about how politics was the first big business of America, which is interesting to think of. And he showed the corporations how they could make people want things that they didn't need by linking these mass-produced goods to their unconscious desires. And he also took that same theory and applied it to politics. The opening line of his book is the conscious and intelligent manipulation of organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. But I thought... (laughs) And again, it's, it's a tale as old as time, right? Because it's like the fear of like... The uneducated masses can't be trusted. And so this mysterious elite or royalty must manipulate things. And it's just so interesting that he says it's an important element in democratic society to manipulate people. When it's it, laughable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm literally cracking up. <laughs> I'm no, losing oh, oh. my... Yeah, laugh out Um, so basically, yeah, he just the idea of appealing to people's wants and unconscious desires instead of their needs was something he was responsible for. And like one of the biggest feats of his career, I guess, was his campaign where he promoted smoking to women because it was taboo. But then he persuaded them that cigarettes were like sexy and a symbol of independence because he started putting ads with them holding cigarettes and calling them torches of freedom. So he was very successful in getting women to smoke. And he was also part of this coup that overthrew, I think it was like the Guatemalan president or something, but he was involved in a lot of crazy things. (laughs) Just mass consumer persuasion. And he came up with like every trick in the book using celebrity endorsement, PR stunts, eroticizing motor cars, making people think cars are sexy. But in politics, I guess the takeaway is, according to him, like, the key for a candidate winning an election is the manipulation of public opinion. And according to Bernays, that's achieved most effectively by appealing to mental cliches and emotional habits of the public, which you could argue Trump did a good job of doing in 2016. Absolutely. And did a better job at that than Clinton. And so I think you've kind of talked about this before too, but like, Basically, a president is a product 
to be marketed. And as a marketer knows, it's not necessarily the quality of the product that will make it successful. It's the spin. It's the story behind the product. It's appealing to the people's desires to make them feel like they have to have this product. And yeah, I think you were though specifically saying like presidents have, especially with like Bush and things like that, a lot of people kind of view presidents as almost like an imaginary friend. And in elections, it's like, who would you rather have beer with? Um, you know, so, and that was something we thought, even though we don't like agree with Trump, we thought he did a better job of that than Clinton last time around. And now he has pretty much taken a lot of Bernays's principles and applies them through Twitter. So he has like almost eight, 80 million followers on Twitter. And that's what he uses to craft and control his info or his narrative. But also you bet your ass there probably is like a real PR firm helping him too, as there has been for like every administration. The numbers speak for themselves. I recently saw the number of followers that Biden has on social media platforms versus Trump. And it's like absolutely breathtaking uh how how many more followers trump has than than biden damn probably Uh, across all boards right yeah like for instance there's one example twitter trump is at at least the time of this infographic 49 million and Biden sits at a paltry 2.7. What? Like, that's insane. Oh, my God. And not even, like... I know Obama eventually came out and gave a soft endorsement for Biden, but it's like, Obama was so popular, and even he can't... (laughs) He can't uh, get Biden any more followers. They're going to, I don't know what kind of PR spin they're going to need to do on Biden's side. Um, I don't know which which crisis management team would be worse to be on right now. Honestly, I, I, I'd say Biden's, but it's definitely a close call. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, your life would suck more, even more with Trump, but... Right, no doubt. But, I mean, essentially the strategy... Seemingly, the strategy for Biden right now is to keep him muzzled in that basement in Delaware. Like, how is that a winning strategy? Well, I do see, like, some value in letting Trump spin his wheels and, you know, falter and stumble amidst the pandemic. The silence has been astounding from the Biden camp. Yeah, and meanwhile, you have Trump who... Well, he's chomping at the bit to have his rallies again. So I wonder if we're going to see, like, a presidential debate on Zoom come the fall. Well, I'll tell you this much. If it's anything like Biden's recent Zoom rally, it was a fucking disaster. (laughs) He didn't know he was it looked like he's been trapped in the cloud for years (laughs) he like took off his aviators put him back on there was a glitch in the matrix as well which didn't help him (laughs) it it honestly looks like a fucking hollywood editor or some rogan turn for buzzfeed like intentionally strung together a series of mishaps to make him look bad but it was straight up, like, live virtual footage of the Zoom rally that Biden was hosting. It was so rough. Oh, yeah, it doesn't bode well for <laughs> his chances in the debate. I can just no. see it, like, a Zoom debate and a porn star is running around naked in the back of Trump's <laughs> monitor. <laughs> but then Joe is literally sleeping in his chair, snoring, and his narcolepsy has kicked in again. So it'll 
it'll be a spectacle. But yeah, I'm sure we'll see also how this summer plays out and what indeed will happen with the election. Anyway, it's just interesting to think of PR in this new way. I know I used to only think of it applying to consumer products, but now that we know, you know, our government uses it for perception management, it's important to take everything with a grain of salt and it's what I like to remind a lot of non-believers or like people who like to call us conspiracy theorists or tinfoil hat people. Um, I like to just tell them like, you know, I feel bad bursting their bubble, but like we said in previous episodes, if you don't realize that the government doesn't give a fuck about you, for the most part, I'm not saying all because I do think people like Bernie and progressives like that care about the good of the people, but just for the most part, if you think that your government is a loving, supporting entity, well then the PR magic propaganda did its thing and brainwashed you and that's why a lot of people get so angry when you try and bring up something that threatens their long-held beliefs. But they don't question, like, why they're getting angry. It's really just, like, it's going against your brainwashing. But once someone presents you with some facts that make you change your mind or see things differently, then you wake up a little bit more. And that's why I do bring up the Edward Bernays and how he helped shape public relations. And like we talked about at the beginning of that, PSYOPs, are literally in the U.S. Army Field Manual from the Department of Defense. It is used. Like, for example, um, I know that there's so many, and I really urge people to look them up themselves, but the one that comes to mind for me is that in 1992, there was this widely publicized video of people toppling over Saddam Hussein's statue. And everyone in the West was like, see, the people love our democracy. They're so happy we're helping them, blah, blah, blah. And then years later, it became public knowledge that this was a government psyop and it was 100% staged, paid actors. Oh my god. But then the PR machine, the smoke and mirrors are so thick that even, even when the truth comes out, it doesn't even matter. So we are living in this post-fact world, and that's also why the coronavirus is so hard to navigate, because it's like, you just don't know what the truth is. And I will say that one thing, not only is Trump, but definitely like idiots of specifically, uh, I would say like a silent master in the sense that he knows how to shift the narrative in his favor. It's it's really, I mean, his entire administration has been a masterclass in shifting the narrative. Um, it is alarming how many people I talk to who don't even give credit for that. Am I saying he's an effective leader? Of course not. Am I saying he's uh, an effective uh, messenger and storyteller and Ted Bernays' point like model for, for all this stuff absolutely absolutely yeah because how else do you explain him surviving all of these PR nightmares or scandals that he's been able to survive and again like we've talked about in previous episodes Biden's getting accused by some women, but over 17 have publicly accused Trump. And yet, (laughs) he beat those charges like Rocky, so I don't know. (laughs) He's a master disaster. And this is the biggest disaster. Yeah, he is the king. The king of disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, we were kind of joking a few episodes ago about, like, can't wait to see how he's going to spin this. But in a matter of weeks, he already has in certain ways. He already has 
emboldened his base to like effectively storm the capital of Michigan and storm the capital of Virginia and all these places. So now it firmly like as the many states uh, and cities and counties begin to open up, he's already created this wedge issue uh, on this like culture war battleground. So like those who wear masks and those who don't, it's like a signifier of your leanings or your, um, you know, cultural and political attitudes. It's not a matter of public health. It's it's now as simple as like red or blue. Are you staying home? Are you wearing a mask? Or are you going out boldly, courageously, not wearing a mask? You know, it's, he's already created the shifted this tinderbox to surf him. Yeah, and uh, just another great example and danger of spin and propaganda. Getting people emotionally riled up because this is such, you know, the classic American heartstrings to pull of, you want me to stay inside, you've taken away my liberty, um, and all of that, when, again, they don't see the whole psyop spin on them because... Sure, you know, universal health care has its own problems and every country is different, but like people aren't losing their jobs as much in as much as they are in the US. Like the UK is not losing as many jobs, Canada is not, and they also both have universal health care. And here we have people losing their jobs and a lot of people losing their health care or not having health care at all and losing their jobs. So it's just funny that these people, the psyop is that, again, that Trump is somehow their savior when it's just they can't see that he's playing his own game. Like, we, it's hard to tell what the hell he's doing, whether he is, you know, really against the globalists, if he's been bought by them, or if he's just in it for himself, which I think is the real truth. But... All of that is playing out in real time, so we shall see. Oh, for sure, and this is all just fodder. This is all the laying the seeds for what will become the, like, Trump media empire. Uh, you could argue that he is one, but you better believe if he's booted in January of 2021, or 2025, or 2029, whatever it is. <laughs> I believe the fucking very next day is going to be a launch of, like, the Trump network, you know. Um, he's already recently kind of started to cut some ties with Fox News, um, and it's just so clear that regardless of all the mayhem and missteps, there's one uh, definitely decisive march toward, uh, yeah, building his own. Uh, well, luckily, we have, for now, uncensored podcasts, so we better just be grateful, at least right now, we can still get our word out, um, and we will continue to do so until we are forcibly silenced by Trump Network. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but hopefully it won't get to that part. Yes, yeah, so there's always so much to say. Other people have indicated Trump might be the last president. We'll get into some Ingersoll Lockwood shit on a different episode. But it seems like things are getting a little bit better, so we'll hold on to that for now. And we'll still be here to keep following all this crazy shit. That's right. Well, take care of y'all, and we'll see you next time. Bye.